We live in a pretty chaotic world, don't we? And I guess this series that we're looking through, it's in one sense, it's preparing us maybe for a bit of chaos. At the same time, it's not just about a one particular time. We want to reflect on the reality of our experience as human beings. And we live in a chaotic world, don't we? A world where we're not sure what is going to happen, what the future might be. When we look back, we are amazed at some of the things that have happened. We wonder how they happened. Uh, and we wonder what strange things might happen again in the future. Uh, those who are perhaps old enough to remember, the, 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 I guess, the glory days, really, uh, of coming out of those uh, dark and desperate uh, times post the Second World War, there was a real sense of optimism which grew up in, in, Western, in the Western world, a sense of hope. But I think it was pretty soon, within a couple of decades, it was falling apart, really. That sense of hope was, was diminishing. Uh, and we continued to live with, with a, an angst and a worry. We can see it in some of our great poets and songwriters. Some of you might know of Tom Waits. One of those iconic songwriters, bit of a cult following, but the kind of voice that speaks amazing thoughts for, for now probably around about 30 or 40 years, uh, he's been speaking into a culture. Uh, he wrote these words in, the, in 2002. There's a leak. There's a leak in the boiler room. The poor, the lame, the blind. Who are the ones we kept in charge? Killers, thieves, and lawyers. Apologies for anybody who's... <laughs> In the legal profession, I didn't write that. <laughs> the title of the song is God's Away on Business. I think that that little phrase, God's Away on Business, is incredibly poignant for many of us as we journey through life. We need to ask that question. We need to consider, how do we know whether God is away on business? whether he's not interested, whether he's disengaged, or whether there is a reality of engagement in a crazy and chaotic world. How can we have faith and hope when things are going the way they are? I think that that for us today is incredibly important because we carry with it the feelings, I think, of our generation. The instability for some is debilitating. The fear for some of us is terrifying. How can we rise above and how can we have a hope in this chaotic world? Can we learn anything from this strange account uh, in the book of Acts? Well, let's see uh, what we can see. Firstly, Acts uh, chapter 8 and verse 1 to 3, the first thing that we see is a horrific situation. Look at what it says. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. It's really easy for us when we read a historical account, 
when we read something in the Bible to sort of disconnect really and imagine that we, we kind of gloss over it. But let's just pause for a minute and let's enter into the story. Let's not do what we probably do lots of occasions when we hear of a horrific event uh, going on in the world. Uh, I guess most of us are, are susceptible to something like this. We hear an event on the news and it, we, it catches our, our thought. Uh, and then we find out where it is and it's further away, it's more distant than anywhere that we have any connection with. Uh, and then we become disengaged from it. And then we find out that it's a place where that kind of thing is going on continually and we kind of switch off from it. But if it goes on very close to us, we're really on it. We want to know what is happening. That same thing that can go on with the news where, it's, where we're, we're kind of insulated by distance, we can have the same issue with by being insulated by time, can't we? Even though we're interested in the story. But the reality is that one of the spokesmen for the fledgling church Stephen, which is growing at an incredible rate in Jerusalem, has stood up and spoken about this Jesus. And a man named Saul has given his authority, which is what it was, he gave his legal authority in terms of his Jewish leadership for him to be killed, which is why we have that strange beginning to this chapter. And Saul approved of their killing him. It's an unusual way to start a chapter, isn't it, with an and? Uh, grammatical people, you never start a sentence, don't start a paragraph, and definitely don't start a new chapter. That's what we would say. But it's, it's there because it connects what has gone before with what now happens. Stephen is killed, and as a result, there is an explosion of persecution against everybody who claims to be a follower of Jesus who are in Jerusalem. And what we see is that on that day and the great persecution bro broke out, there, were, there was a scattering. People literally ran for their lives because people were literally being dragged off, put in prison, uh, all of their possessions seized, families ripped apart, there was an absolutely terrible, horrific event going on in Jerusalem from that day over the next period of time. Let's just pause for a minute and let's imagine what it would be like if we are believers in Jesus or if we're thinking about this idea of faith in Jesus. Imagine what it would be like to be in Jerusalem at that moment in time, not knowing whether when we went out to buy a loaf of bread for the day's food, whether we were going to be dragged away, thrown into prison. That was the experience. It was horrific. It was terrible. And we look at that and we, we ask a question. How, how, can, how can this be acceptable? How can this be good? Doesn't even this look as if God is away on business. Doesn't this moment, you might have been a follower or a believer in Jesus in Jerusalem at this point in time for maybe just a few weeks, maybe just a few months, certainly a really short period of time. 
And then there's this explosion. You think to yourself, what? I thought that this was supposed to be good news. I suppose I thought this was supposed to be hope. And here suddenly, my family has been stripped from me. That's a reality of this, the context of this chapter. And in a sense, it puts us uh, right in front of the question. And it is a question which is really asked right the way through the Bible. In fact, I'm going to take us all the way back to Genesis chapter 50. A man named Joseph, who we looked at a number of months ago, he has gone through a terrible life. And then he's, he's ended up rising to the top of um, the authoritative powers of the great empire of Egypt. His horrific life was because of his brothers, because of their jealousy of Joseph. It ends up through remarkable circumstances which couldn't, ev- couldn't be anything other than God's hand moving in the situation, that his brothers are in front of him after his father has died and his brothers are terrified of him because they feel as though finally at the moment when the father has died, this is the moment where Joseph is going to wreak all of that revenge back on us. Everything that's gone on, he's gonna, it's just going to pour out over us. His, read in verse 18 of chapter 50. His brothers then came and threw themselves before him. We are your sli- slaves, they said. He's the youngest. And his brothers come down and throw themselves in front of him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That is an incredible statement. And in fact, that statement, that idea, that thought, we could take it from Genesis chapter 50, and we could kind of put that idea as a banner over the rest of the storyline of the Bible. That idea appears in all sorts of different ways. You intended it for my evil. You intended to destroy me. You intended for this to be a terrible thing, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That that takes such a radical shift of the way that we view the events of life, doesn't it? It it takes us not just to end up in that place, it takes us to have an ability, to have a framework of thinking which allows us to see things in a different way. To see it in a way which is not the way we would naturally see it. Naturally, Joseph would be looking to absolutely decimate his brothers. But he sees the hand of God behind the events of life. Naturally, these disciples of Jesus who are scattered away, having only just become followers of Jesus, naturally they would say, sack that. (laughs) I'm out of here. Forget it. Look at what actually happens. 
The first thing that we see is Philip's first move and behavior. Look at what happens. Verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. (laughs) That's amazing. Now, we could get into all sorts of in-depth discussion. Let me just throw a thought out for you who are interested in the kind of storyline of the Bible. One of the things that Jesus said is, go and take my message to the ends of the earth. And so they stayed in Jerusalem. (laughs) And there was that moment where he... It seemed as though they had to be shifted out of Jerusalem, and they go to Samaria. They end up in Samaria, the place where, by, by kind of cultural context, they would be in opposition, relationally. Philip ends up in, in Samaria, and he starts to preach and to proclaim the Messiah there. He does precisely what would not be expected of somebody who's just gone through the ordeal that he has experienced. He's been persecuted, he's run for his life, he's managed to escape, and the natural experience, the human experience, would generally be to keep our heads down. And yet the the dramatic change that had gone on in his life resulted in him proclaiming the Messiah there. What was the result? The result was startling. It's incredible. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many were paralyzed, and the lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Philip leaves a place of terror. He ends up in a place which would naturally be hostile, He speaks about Jesus, and the city is turned upside down. Turned upside down with joy. Amazing, incredible things are going on. Things that we could only dream of by God's grace that they might happen in a place like this. But they might, because that's the God that we worship. Incredible things go on. When Philip is moved from a place which seemed safe, which became unsafe, to go to a place which seemed unsafe and became safe. Isn't that amazing? We could then write over that, you meant it for evil, but God intended this for good because he's in the job of saving many souls. What an incredible thought. I'm not actually, strangely, I'm not going to, really speak about the, the other little vignettes. The next one is about Simon the sorcerer. I'm not going to talk about that so much today because what I'm interested in is the journey of Philip, the things that happened to him. Why? Because actually I think he's a great representative of life for all of us. Things that happen which are bad. Things that happen which are unexpected. Things that seem, uh, just really, really did not want this to happen. But how does he respond? How How does Philip present himself in a way 
which gives us an insight into how he thought and therefore an insight into how we might think. Well, we've already seen that he left and he carried on the job of living his life as a believer in Jesus. It's absolutely key. Now, that, that doesn't mean, it really doesn't mean that all of us are called to go and preach everywhere that we go. He was already, it seems, preaching in Jerusalem. In fact, it seems likely that the people who were first scattered were the first spokespeople of this new faith. But what he was, he continued to be in the face of adversity. He could see something which was better than he had understood before. He could see something which was bigger than the events of the life that he had just experienced. Jesus, Jesus I think it's in Hebrews, we read exactly the same of, of Jesus. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, we read in Hebrews. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That's what, that's what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. But what was set before Jesus was the cross, wasn't it? But it, it, it says that he, he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. In other words, Jesus saw something which was bigger than the cross. That's, that's unbelievable, isn't it? How can you see something that's the bigger than the cross? <laughs> when you absolutely have a faith and trust that beyond the cross is life and joy and triumph and victory, then that becomes bigger than the events that he was immediately facing. That's where Philip is. He saw something. He latched onto something. That's why he wanted to carry on proclaiming something which had already caused him trouble. Because he knew that it was bigger than the trouble. And so we place ourselves in the story alongside Philip. If you like, I want to imagine it like this. We have the story, the story of the Bible and the story of Philip up there. And then we have our life. Uh, going along? How does our life intertwine, interconnect? How do we live our life in the light of that life? That, that's what I'm trying to, to help us to get to. How do I live now in the light of that life that is portrayed before me? Philip sees something, and in seeing something, he has hope. But there's something else that is absolutely key, and it's this. He does not judge the terrors of Jerusalem as God's judgment on him. Now, we know the story, so we would never think that he would do that. But the problem is that we repeatedly think like that. When bad things happen, we have a tendency to say, this is because I'm in the wrong place. This is because God's angry and judging me. In the case of Philip, that was not the case. He was living his life 
in the light of Jesus and in living his life in the light of Jesus, he gets persecuted. He gets moved on. What an encouragement for us to reassess how we see our life lived. But the things that seem chaotic, the things that seem a problem, in this intertwined, complex, impossible to understand, chaotic world, there is a hope in the message of the Bible that all of this is working out for the better good of God's people and the name of Jesus. That is key. So that when we go into situations, when we find things unfolding, we think, what is going on here? We might never know the answer. But actually, it might be that in this complex intertwining of events, there is hope. It's an incredible story of five MAF pilots, well, five MAF missionaries in the Alka, uh, reaching the Alka Indians in uh, South America. 1956, 57, I think it was, something like that. They, they made great contact. They were a, ter- they were a tribe of, uh, of Indians who were, uh, native Indians who were absolutely terrified, uh, absolutely terrifying to the surrounding people groups and to the various uh, commercial enterprises. They'd made contact with them. They landed their plane on a strip of sand. They were in contact with them for a few days and then radio silence. They'd been slaughtered by the tribesmen. Terrible. One of those tribesmen baptized the granddaughter of one of those men that he had killed. How incredible is that? You see, he didn't see. Nate Saint didn't see what was going on in that event. But something bigger was going on in that event that was way bigger than anything that he could have ever imagined. Something incredible. That's that's at least one thread that we can hold on to as we try to understand how to live our lives when chaos emerges. The second is Philip's second move. There's this whole story about Simon the sorcerer, incredible things going on. I mean, the the city that they were in was upside down. People were talking about it every day. Things were going on. And now we come to Philip's second move. Verse 26. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So the first move was legging it because you're about to be killed. And you end up in a place which you think is going to be hostile and ends up with this ongoing, incredible turning to God. Astounding. And then in the middle of that, um, those amazing events, God says, I want you to go and walk along a dusty desert road. 
you think, what? Look at what's going on here. This is incredible. You, you, you know, for those who have kind of a, a, a church kind of background and perspective, you'd say, this is an incredible revival. There is people becoming believers all over the place. There's so much work to do. They're young. How are we going to stabilize them in this faith? How are we going to prepare them so that if persecution comes to them, that they're ready? And then you say, go and walk along a desert road. What? So what does he do? Walks along a desert road. So he started out. I think that's great. I think that's that little phrase, so he started out, is a brilliant little sentence. To leave what looked impressive. To do something that looks unimpressive. I think we need to hear that as a church, as a wider church. It is really tempting to do the things that are impressive, and yet it's incredibly important to do faithfully the things that seem unimpressive. We've got to do that. We've got to hold on to that. And we've also got to trust this that God might move us from a place that seems profile, impressive, incredible, and we might end up on a desert road. And then do we say, have I got this wrong? Have I, have I not read, not understood, not heard? Has God left me because I'm now walking along a desert road? I wonder whether Philip, as he, in that uh, so, what, would it, what was it exactly? So he started out. I wonder whether, having started, whether there was a moment of doubt walking along a dusty desert road. Uh, yeah, oh, God said that I should walk along this desert road, and he sets off. And an hour later, and two hours later, and a day later, however long it is, it's, what am I doing here? This, I have got this so, so badly wrong. Maybe that was his feeling. We, we don't know. But we know that that is our experience at times. And there is a temptation in those moments to say, I've got this wrong, God has left me. Has he? He's walking along. And then he comes to this chariot. He met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasures of Kandake, the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Just a little moment. Two people here, one a sorcerer, one an Ethiopian eunuch. Both who historically, according to the pattern of the Old Testament, both would have been barred from any possibility of worshipping the God of the Jews. And yet he's reading this book of Isaiah. And we say, what a remarkable coincidence. 
Is it? Of course it isn't. He's on the desert road because this Ethiopian eunuch is reading the book of Isaiah on the back of his chariot. The coming together of strands, remarkably, incredibly. And Philip is actually taken out of a place of incredible success for one conversation. He has a conversation. It's a long reading, but I'll tell you what happens next. He has a conversation with this, this Ethiopian eunuch. He comes to faith. He's baptized. And then Philip's disappears. He's off again. That's all it was. You've got to go and walk on this desert road for one conversation. But it is ground-shaking in the purpose of God. And it seemed tiny, and yet it was huge. And it's recorded, because Luke later on goes and works out all that had gone on, because it became significant, that conversation. One, he's making the point that people who historically have been excluded can now be brought into faith. That's us, because we were historically excluded. Those of us who are not Jews were historically excluded, and now we can be brought into faith by Jesus. Philip finds this one man. There's a man called uh, Irenaeus who wrote later on about this man. Irenaeus writes this, this man, Simon Bacchus the eunuch, was also sent into the regions of Ethiopia to preach what he had himself believed, that there was one God preached by the prophets, but the son of this God had already made him appear in human flesh and had been led as a sheep to the slaughter and all the other statements which the prophets made regarding him. That's what Irenaeus writes about Simon Bacchus, who we, we know as far as we... This is only 100 AD 180. It's about 150 years after this event. So what happens is one conversation becomes a domino effect that in Ethiopia there becomes this growing gathering of believers because one person has a conversation with one person on the back of a chariot and he goes back and he starts to speak to other people and other people in Ethiopia start to come to faith and all of them then are carried up into a way of viewing life which is bigger than the immediate things that are happening in front of them. Isn't it, isn't it enticing that there is the possibility to be part of that kind of story? You know, so many people are looking for purpose in life, looking for something, want to be something, want to, to have some sense of identity, some sense of worth. And this story that's portrayed before us invites us to say, come and join this. Come and live your life entwined in this story. You don't all have to preach. You have to live your life in this story rather than the story that you would normally live your life in. But then you can be filled with something which brings a hope no matter what the events. 
no matter how they unfold, no matter what happens in life, whether it's terrible persecution, whether it's absolute crisis, or whether you end, out, end up, figuratively speaking, out on a desert road, no matter what it is, all of those different experiences of life are carried up into a bigger story, something which allows us then to be able to say that I am in Jesus. I am in Christ. That, that's one of the phrases that's used a number of times in the New Testament. Peter says it at the end of uh, is 1 Peter. He says this, peace to all of you who are in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means that I've done what Simon did. I've done what the Ethiopian eunuch did. I've done what Philip did. I have reorientated my life so that I now sit within this story of Jesus and the hope that he had when he endured the cross, the joy that was set before him which was bigger than the cross becomes my hope. I have that hope. Not because I deserve it, but because I am in him. And my life is now entwined in the threads of the life of God in this world, in Jesus, by the power of His Spirit. That is an astounding invitation. An invitation which is actually made to us by one man who makes two surprise moves. Philip. So we would answer, I think, Tom Waits, when it feels like God is away on business, the reality is that He is precisely engaged in His business, in His purpose, in what He is doing in this broken world of redeeming His people. That is great news.